You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Janelia Espinal, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. No one ever taught me about money. No one. Not my parents, not a friend's rich dad, and certainly not in high school. Well, that's not exactly true. No one sat me down and specifically lectured me on how money works, but I had lots of silent teachers, lots of good modeling. My parents were highly paid entrepreneurs who saved more than they spent, owned real estate, and invested in the stock market. My friends' parents were doctors and lawyers, CEOs and founders, and they lived in big houses and bought nice cars. I didn't need a formal education because informally I was being taught how to earn, retain, and grow money. My guest today grew up in a very different environment. The child of immigrants who were doing their best to make ends meet, she received all sorts of great modeling about life, but none of the financial lessons that I did. And she certainly didn't learn them in high school. Janelli Espinal is known on the internet as Miss Be Helpful. She's a millennial financial educator who started her career as a teacher and now serves as the director of educational outreach at NextGen Personal Finance. She is currently on a political roller coaster ride across the country, convincing lawmakers to make personal finance a high school graduation requirement. Her new book is Mind Your Money Insightful Stories and Strategies to Help You Reach Your Money Goals. Janelle Espinal, welcome to Earn and Invest. Let's start during your childhood. Tell me about the time you were caught stealing lip gloss. <laughs> Doc, why you got to start with that? <laughs> <laughs> because that's oh, the beginning. You know, it really is. And it's crazy because I've come so far that when I tell that story, it's almost like hard to tell because people immediately are like, <gasps> I'm like, I know, I know. Oh my gosh. Like, yes. But it's, it's, it's supposed to show that you aren't the things that you do. You aren't the mistakes that you've made. You are your character and how you continue to choose to carry yourself and behave and everything. So obviously I'm not going around stealing today, but I definitely got caught stealing. I was probably, I don't know, I want to say maybe like 11 or 12 years old. And I was with my sister who was probably a year older than me at the time and, or is always a year older than me. And she, you know, we walked into a, a pharmacy and we're walking up and down the aisles and she may have like mentioned it to me, like off the cuff, like, oh, just take the lip, you know, take the lip gloss that you want. And then I started thinking about it. And then she was like, don't, no, don't do it. I was just joking. Don't do it. But then I kept thinking about it. I was like, oh, it, it would be really easy to take it. Right. So 
I didn't have enough money to buy it. And I the reason why I wanted it wasn't even for me. It was because I was trying to give it as a as a gift in a, a like holiday gift swap that we did at my church. And I had my god sister, and she's like the sweetest. She's very much into makeup and things that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't buying makeup for myself at that age, but I wanted to get her something I thought she would like. And, you know, all the lip glosses were over my budget. I think I had like $4 in my pocket. So I grabbed one and I started to kind of peel off like the barcode and, and I slipped it up my sleeve. And I thought, you know, nobody saw me. I thought I was so slick. And of course, we got stopped at the door on the way out. And my sister was petrified. I mean, she was so embarrassed. Like she was looking at me like she wanted to chew my head off. And I was like, I'm sorry, sis. Like I didn't. I just didn't think it was such a big deal, first of all, that even if we did get caught, oh my gosh, it's like a lip gloss. Like they don't care so much about this, but they made it a big deal. They brought us to the back. They took the camera footage and played it. So I was watching myself sliding lip gloss up my sleeve thinking I'm slick. And I was just so embarrassed and just full of shame. And like, I, I think that that moment was definitely something that stuck with me. But worse than that was my parents. And I put this in my book that like, the real guilt and shame, it didn't hit me really until I saw my mom and dad's faces because they grew up in poverty, right? Like in a developing country. And they tell me all the time, no matter how poor we were, no matter how much we struggled, you never saw us model stealing. You never saw us steal. You never saw us do anything like that. No matter how hard things were, we never taught you that. So they were just so sad that like I would resort to that. And I worked really hard trying to, you know, buy their love back. I was like, no, I th- <laughs> like earn their love back. Like, no, please, that's not, you know, who you raised me to be. But when you don't have money and you're a kid, and a lot of times these thoughts cross your mind about it's not that big of a deal. And so, you know, it was one of those hiccups that I put it in my book because I really want to make sure that we have a little bit more grace when we meet students. I work in a lot of Title I funded schools, the schools that I attended, and I want us to give more grace to these kids because what they're going through, you never understand. You think they're being selfish and they're stealing for themselves or they they're just want to be little thieves. Like, you don't know what their home situation is like. You don't know what the intention is, why they took that, what they're going through. And don't, you know, make this who they are. They're not their mistakes. Your parents' response, obviously, it's clear they were modeling good, moral, ethical behavior, hence the outrage when this happened. But did you guys talk much about money and talk about kind of how they modeled money behavior? Yeah. So my mom is extremely religious. She's very Catholic. My dad, eh, he'll go to church because my mom asks him to, but that's, you know, it's not his personal calling. And so it was different between my mom and dad. My mom was the one who was always at home using money to do things, but my dad was the one who would go work and earn the money. So there was this divide, which was very visual. Like dad's never here. He's always working. And why? Because he needs to bring money. And then who uses the money? Mom, she has to buy the groceries, pay for our school supplies, take us shopping for back to clothes it was very clear that there was a, a like a divide between the money making and the money spending and nobody was talking about that or anything else my mom never told us about how much things cost or you know why we can get things she would just say no hay dinero no hay dinero there's no money there's no money for that we don't have money for that and so it just became this kind of knowing that I had, even though nobody told me not to talk about money, it was just this knowing that like, I just breathed it in. Like, I know not to ask for money. I know not to bring it up. I know that things are tight. And clearly the relationship, the dynamic between my mom and dad was that when my dad was upset, it was because money was tight. So I didn't even want to insert myself in that because I was like, oh, you know, but one thing I did take away is that money 
controls you for the good or for the bad, like if you let it. And in my dad's case, his mood swings were very much controlled by money. When when he had enough money to pay for the rent and to pay for the bills, he was in a great mood. Oh, dad's the best. He's so fun. He plays with us. And when he's in a really bad mood and like makes my mom cry and yells at us, like it's obvious that money is just really tight for him right now. Tell me about as immigrants, were your parents prepared? Did they kind of have the knowledge of how to build wealth? I mean, you've really been on this roller coaster. You're now a financial expert. You know how to help people acquire, maintain, invest wealth. Did your parents have any of that ability coming to the U.S. as immigrants? They were really good at saving for things they needed and honestly saving ahead, which I think is like really amazing. I mean, it's not a skill everybody has. Everybody doesn't naturally want to sock away money like, you know, squirrels putting away nuts. Like we don't all have that innate desire to want to save. And maybe it wasn't a desire they had, but out of sheer necessity, they were savers. And so my dad, I always remember seeing rolled up cash in in rubber bands in his closet or in his drawer, sock drawer, because he knew like there's going to be things that I'm going to have to pay for. And he was always kind of putting away money. As I started to like learn about personal finance and read about, you know, a lot of the like different financial literacy blogs and things, I realized people call those sinking funds. And it's funny because like you're thinking a year ahead, six months ahead, like what's coming down the pipeline that I need to start saving for now. My parents were doing that already. They just didn't have a language for it. And so they never taught us about it. But I did see them constantly saving. The problem is it was just cash. They never established a bank account. They never established any type of investment accounts. So, of course, when you're saving up for in cash and then a year later, your cash is now worth 9% less. If we're talking about the rate of inflation, 22, 23, your, your money is literally being eaten away by inflation in your sock drawer. And you feel so good, you know, that you have it securely, you know, saved there. But it's actually one of the worst way things that you can do with money. So for me, I I saw that and I kind of wanted to like copy that behavior and save for emergencies. But as I, thank goodness, like in my 20s, started to learn about like paying off debt, that I had a bunch of credit card debt and learning how to budget and save. I read about how inflation really deteriorates your dollars. And so I was like, ooh, that was the number one mistake mommy and papi made. They never understood the mistake that it is putting all your money in cash and not having an account where you can actually grow it and try to fight back a little bit, at least against inflation. Your parents modeled very good saving behavior and and hard work behavior. And in fact, you took that on. Like you got a job at the age of 14. You worked really hard in high school. You got into the prestigious Brown University, an amazing college. And in fact, started working at a pizzeria when you got there. Yet you took on a new and different kind of behavior, which it sounds like your parents didn't have a problem with. Talk about getting your first credit card. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because I I did an interview recently and they asked me about getting my first credit card and they asked me, how did it feel when you touched the credit card for the first time? And I don't think I've ever been asked that. But when I, when I really think about it, I felt accomplished. I felt like a successful adult because I opened the envelope and pulled out a plastic credit card that had my name on it. It felt like getting my diploma with my name on it, getting my high school degree with a diploma with my name on it, my, my college degree with my name on it. It felt like an achievement that I had attained. Like it's weird, but because I had no clue how a credit card actually works and what this arrangement was between me and the bank, 
I thought it was something I had achieved as an adult who is now independent of mommy and papi that I could do this on my own with my name on this card and I don't have to go begging mom and dad to give me money that I know they don't have, that I'm going to handle it myself again with this card that has my name on it. And so that's that's so weird to think of now because obviously it's you know kind of kind of backwards but that was really my my thought process at 18 holding a credit card in my hand but back then so this is pre credit card act of 2009 when anybody on a college campus you could spot a credit card, uh, you know, company with within a few minutes of walking out of your dorm room, right? They're offering you a slice of pizza in exchange for a credit card application, a t-shirt, a frisbee, anything. And so that's kind of what happened. I was walking across campus and I saw somebody with a clipboard talking about credit cards and I, I stopped to talk to her. And she mentioned like, if you're struggling to pay for your textbooks, if you know, if you're struggling to pay for your school supplies or for whatever you might need, you can put it on a student credit card and then you can pay it back little by little. And to me, that just sounded like exactly what I needed because my little pizzeria paycheck was not enough to buy six different textbooks and a laptop. So I went ahead and filled out the application right then and there. I submit, you know, I gave it to her. And then two weeks later, I got my credit card at my campus mailbox. And again, you know, for me, it felt like an accomplishment. And I, I it, to me, it's like it's sad that we make it so easy for people to apply for these things without actually understanding the real implications and the terms and conditions. Instead of putting them in font four in legalese, it should just be a conversation where, hey, like, make sure that you understand this. And to me, like in my book, I I have like something called the credit syllabus because I felt like academically I was set up for success to know what I need to do to get an A in any class. Right. And I'm that nerdy kid. I always did, I always did well in school. I never had issues doing well academically. But because I was given a roadmap, I was told straight up what I needed to do to get an A. You know, 35 percent of my grade is attendance. 30% of my grade is participation in class. 15% of my grade is my midterm. Like, I know that showing up to class and raising my hand and speaking about the reading, those two things alone are 65% of my grade. I know what to do to get an A, right? But they don't do that when they hand you a credit card or when they give you a loan and no one tells you how to get that perfect credit score by using this strategically. They just expect you to just know or figure it out through the school of hard knocks, making all these mistakes, you know, which is essentially what happened to me because I didn't know about the factors of your credit score or how to build good credit. And so I just used that credit card all wrong. I maxed it out. I bought everything that I wanted and needed and then and then more. And I just let the interest accrue for so many years while I was in school making my little minimum payment every month. Did your parents have credit cards when you were growing up? No debit cards, no credit cards, no bank accounts, nothing. It was all cash. I remember, and I see this often with doctors, when you go through your training, you're working really hard, you're accruing a huge amount of debt, and you're not spending much money because you don't make a lot. And then what happens is you become a practicing physician, and all of a sudden you're getting a six-figure salary. And what we see a lot of physicians do is they overspend. It's like, oh, now I can do this. I've been you know, waiting for so long, and now... Now I can treat myself. Did you feel a little bit of that when you got the credit card? Like I've been scrounging, I've been saving, I got all these scholarships to go to college so I didn't have to pay for it. Was there a little piece of you that was like, I deserve to go out and spend a little more on this credit card? Oh, yes. The I deserve? Oh my gosh. All over my brain. I deserve, I deserve for sure. Because first of all, 
I think it's that deprivation that you speak to when you're in medical school. It's probably one of the most difficult things that anybody could do is go to medical school and do residency. I mean, this is really hard. Your hours are insane. Like your brain isn't getting the sleep it needs and yet you have to operate as a doctor. So I think something as challenging as that is so cutthroat, it's so difficult. And then when you finally are done, how can you not feel that instant? Fine, I deserve it. Like I've just worked so hard. I just did something so difficult, right? I think I had that psychology happening with adversity. Like I felt like I had over, I could come out of poverty. I had literally left a neighborhood where everybody was on government assistance. I knew nobody who was wealthy, rich, who nothing. Like I never met anybody like that until I got to college. And then in college is like when I realized like, wow, like people kind of have a much easier life when they just, their parents are just putting money in their checking accounts and they can just go spend it however they want. That's That feels really nice. I can see the benefits of that and how stress-free they are. If I use my credit card to do the same thing, I probably feel the same, stress-free, like I can get the things I need and want and I can just pay it little by little. I kept telling myself that, but the I deserve came in because I was growing up in an environment where I was constantly told, no hay dinero. No, we don't have money for that. You can't get Jordans. No, you can't get that name brand book bag or that coat name brand everybody's wearing. You can't get those name brand things. And so for so many years being told, no, 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 we don't have money for that. No, you can't get that. And then now I'm given $1,500 on a credit card nobody's there to tell me, no, you can't get this or that. So I went ahead and got the Jordans, the Uggs, the laptop, the MacBook, you know, anything that I wanted. It was like, I deserve it. I've been told no so long and I've been working my butt off. I got a full ride to an Ivy League school. I mean, I defied a lot of odds that were stacked against me. Why shouldn't I get this? Why shouldn't I kind of, you know, treat myself? So that mentality, oh yeah, it seeped in early with me. So I'm purposefully going to ask a provocative question. Was getting in debt your fault? I think it was and it wasn't. It was more not my fault, I would say. And the reason why is because I do think that if as an intelligent 18-year-old, I was clearly capable, you know, I made it to an Ivy League school, clearly had the the ability to understand the a concept that nobody explained to me. So if it had been explained to me, I know that I would have understood the concept. So I feel like the lack of education around this is is key there because I do think that with a simple intervention like a lesson on how compounding interest works and how it can affect you negatively if you're reckless with credit cards or loans I it would have been a wake-up call for me but that being said I have to take some personal responsibility because there were moments where my gut like inside my stomach that little pit was telling me like why are you buying this? Like, you don't have the money to pay this back. Like, are you, you know, are you sure you need another dress for a party on campus that you already have like four dresses? Do you really need another one? And so in my mind, I was just like justifying it. Like, oh, but I'm going to pay it by little by little, right? And that little by little kind of came from the, the woman with the clipboard who had me sign up for a credit card, right? It's like, oh, you just pay it back little by little. And I held on to that, right? Like, oh, I can pay it little <laughs> by little. So I think that there was a lot going on psychologically for me to just justify. But if I'm being honest, my pit in my stomach was telling me, don't swipe that credit card. You're doing too much to get the textbooks and to get the laptop. Of course, you know, I needed those things for school. I will never say I regret those purchases. And even if I was 18 all over again, I would do it again. I would get a credit card and I would buy a laptop and textbooks. I need that to get my good grades, to continue to succeed academically. 
But then there were clothes and shoes and pizzas and drinks and parties and things that I did not need to put. And of course, for me to like absolve myself of all blame in there, it, it would be ridiculous. I knew there was a pit in my stomach, but I just didn't know when to stop and I didn't have any guidance. So I do think that a lot of it was the lack of education, the lack of guidance. It's a theme that I'll kind of come back over and over again in this conversation, but this idea that in the absence of specific educational mandates, we tend to learn from the people around us. So if you happen to grow up in a place where people have money, where people have a certain amount of privilege, you're going to learn these habits from those people around you who are privileged who have been dealing well with money for a long time, and that's why they've accrued money. On the other hand, if you grow up in a place where people don't have money, you're very much likely, unless someone steps in and gives you that education, you're very much likely not to learn those lessons or learn them the hard way. How bad did it get? How much debt did you end up having at its highest point? Yeah, it was over $20,000. And that was when it kind of shocked me because I don't think I ever had, like, I don't think I ever thought that I had the ability to spend $20,000 of available limit, credit limit. But that's the thing. Over the years, I would get another credit card and the previous credit card would increase my limit a little more, too. So it's kind of this combination of getting new cards and increasing limits. By the time I reached my senior year, the year after that, I finally sat down and looked at all my numbers. And I'm like, how is it possible? How did I let it get so bad? How could it have surpassed $20,000? Like, to me, that was so insane and so scary that it, it was really, I think, what I needed to have like that real wake up call. Tell me about your career choice. I mean, someone who was starting to wake into this idea of money, becoming a teacher is a wonderful, laudable job. It doesn't pay a huge amount. Did that cross your mind when you were thinking about what you were going to do for a living? You know, it's interesting. As much as we didn't talk about money in my home, we also never talked about earning earning money or like how much money you make in what job or anything like that. So in my culture, or at least, I mean, maybe not the entire culture, but with my family, and I think it's a cultural thing, the way that my parents think about success is not about how much money you make. It's about what my mom says, convierte en profesional, becoming a professional. Mm -hmm. So for my parents, a teacher is the same as a doctor, is the same as a lawyer, is the same as an entrepreneur, is the same as a, a professional who can be respected for not being, you know, on the street, not doing anything productive, right? So I inherited that mindset of, you know, becoming a professional, becoming something that my parents would look at me and say, wow, look, she's become a professional. She's a working professional. We can be proud of that. And so when I was in college, I just thought, like, what do I enjoy? I really like making art. I studied history of art. I did history of architecture, visual arts, urban studies. I put all these things together and kind of created a mix of majors that I was excited about. But never did I consider which majors would lead to a career with a high paying job, it never once crossed my mind. I knew that I just didn't really want to become a doctor. I didn't really want to be a lawyer. I wanted to do something more creative. I wanted, you know, to be able to kind of use my uh, social skills. And, and so I just never actually asked myself, where are the careers where there's money? And unfortunately, like now I think back and I'm like, wow, how did I never ask myself that once? I just wasn't money minded. We never talked about money. So money was not top of mind for me. I was just trying to please my parents, make them proud, become a professional and live a somewhat fulfilling life for myself based on my interests.
We are talking to Janelle Espinal. She is known on the internet as Miss Behelpful. She is a millennial financial educator who started her career as a teacher and now serves as the director of educational outreach at NextGen Personal Finance. And we are talking about how to mind your money. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Let me reintroduce you. We're talking to Janelle Espinal, and she is the author of Mind Your Money, Insightful Stories and Strategies to Help You Reach Your Money Goals. So you come out of college, you've trained to be a teacher, you've got increasing credit card debt as high as $20,000. What was the turning point? How did you get your mind right when it came to money? I think sitting down and adding up all of that credit card debt that I had. So one of the bad habits that I had, I would open up my credit card bill, which is a PDF in an email somewhere. I would open that PDF up and immediately just glance at the minimum ba- the minimum payment due. 
That's it. That's all I cared about. The second thing I looked for was the due date. That's it. I wanted to know how much do I have to pay and by when. So getting into that habit of just glancing for the minimum due and the due date and making sure that was always the minimum was always paid on time. That's what I did every single month with all of my credit cards. And so that's kind of why I was oblivious to like, what really was the total amount of debt I was carrying? Like, I didn't know because I would just open them all separately and just look at the minimum and just make sure that I was always doing, you know, the minimum by the due date. So I think that the first time was when I actually was, you know, looking through a statement because I had never done that before. I was like scrolling down past the first page and I'm like, wait, what is this interest fee? What is this? What is that? And like, that's a lot of money that I'm being charged. I didn't buy anything that cost $230. What's that? Interest, right? Interest this year. You've you've given the credit card company this much. And I was like, this is not what I thought. And I expected was on here. So then I just started looking at all of my credit card statements. I sat down, I pulled open a spreadsheet, I added up the totals and I started looking at the interest differently. And I'm like, this doesn't even make any sense. Like, how does that work? That's when I started learning about compounding interest and how a 23% interest rate on a credit card is very different from a 5% interest rate on a student loan. So in my mind, student loans and credit cards, it was all the same. It was all borrowing money to get me through college, but I didn't actually understand the differences. And so when I looked at that interest accruing at such a high rate, it scared me. I was like, oh my gosh, this, this is this is honestly, if I don't address this now, this is going to get so out of control. It's going to ruin my life, right? So I knew the math, right, was not working in my direction, it was not working in my benefit. So that was kind of my wake up call. I got scared and I just just started crying. I didn't even really know what to do. Um, but then a couple of days later, I was in a pharmacy and I saw a, a book, Women and Money by Susie Orman. So I, I picked up that book. And like many, you know, who find finance through Susie Orman, like it's just it's an immediate thing. Like she's very stern about how serious this is. And especially in that book, she targets it to an argument that as a woman, it's even more important for you so that you don't have to rely on your father, your brother, your husband, your whoever, your partner. And that really resonated with me because I watched my mom not have any income, but just wait for my dad to come home and say, this is how much, you know, go ahead and this is what you get. And so I saw like there were times where my mom needed money and she she couldn't get it because my dad either told her no or said he didn't have it or no, you know. So so many of my mom's needs just went unmet. And I I recognized that that dynamic that she was talking about between the you know traditional household with the heteronormative relationship. I kind of thought, look, between my mom and my dad, that definitely was the case. And I didn't want to live like that. So I just decided this book is something I need to buy. I paid like nine bucks for it. And I it, I always tell people it was the best $9 investment that I made, the investment in, in my knowledge and in that inspiration that I needed to get serious. So I put in place the nine-month plan that Susie Orman has in her book. It's a debt repayment plan. And I did that twice through. In 18 months, I was able to pay off the debt because I was just so committed. I was like really serious. I was bought into this idea that I'm not going to be this dependent woman who's crying about, no, I'm going to fix this. If I got myself into this mistake, I'm going to get myself out of it. I'm definitely capable. I'm intelligent enough. I can figure this out. And it just meant that I had to get serious about, you know, cutting back, tightening my spending belt and being serious about what I could and could not buy rather than just being thoughtless and reckless with my spending, which I was so used to doing for years. We do a funny thing when it comes to money. We hold our future selves to a much higher standard than we hold our current selves. Why do we do that? And and what effect does it have on us? 
Yeah. So actually in chapter two of my book, which is called Get Your Mind Right, I love the behavioral economics. I love the behavioral science aspect of money and the psychology of money. And so I focus chapter two on just looking at what are the things that mess with our mind when it comes to money. And one of them is we think future you is perfect. We think our future self is going to be the person who's going to fix everything. They're going to make all the right choices that we're not making now. And we don't realize that future us is the same as present us. It's exactly the same. So if you don't do something today to change, then the future version of you is going to be exactly the same that you are now. If you don't change your diet today, you're going to be eating the same thing tomorrow that you eat today. If you don't change your exercise regimen, you're going to physically, your physical fitness is going to be exactly the same tomorrow that it is today. If anything, it might even be worse. So for me, I like that idea came from just researching behavioral economics and starting to go down that nerdy, you know, rabbit hole of all the different studies that showed what affects your mind when it comes to money. So that one is There's so many studies that have been conducted, but one that I really like is Dan Ariely has a video on the internet, which you can watch that talks about this. And also there's a TED talk from Shlomo who talks about how your future you and your mind is perfect. And they demonstrated through their TED talk through a conference where you go and there's all these people and they ask the attendees, when you come back to the next installment of this conference in a couple of weeks, there's going to be bananas and there's going to be chocolates. Which one do you think you'll pick for the break? And everybody says they're going to pick the banana because they all they all were like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to pick the banana next week. And then the following week, they compared the people that said they were going to pick a banana to how many people actually had a, had a banana. It was significantly less. And the majority of people chose chocolate. So I call that section choosing chocolate because you are ultimately choosing chocolate. You are going to like you have to recognize that you're going to choose chocolate in the moment, even if you think that you won't. So the best hack for this is to recognize that this bias exists where we think future us is perfect. And what you can do is try to kind of lock in a, a, a commitment, do something that forces you to not be able to choose chocolate. It's going to force you to make the other choice. So binding agreements, committing a certain increase to your retirement contributions each year that automate themselves, signing up for automatic payments so you can't not pay when the bills do, you know, things like that. And I think for me, this is a lot with automation of your finances, automating your savings, automatic bill payments and things like that have really helped me because they forced me to prepare for that money to move, whether I like it or not. I like this concept of not choosing chocolate. And a big thing that gets in the way of that is FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. I mean, you talked about that in college with buying the Uggs, right? How do we save and be smart with our money when everyone else around us is spending? Because I think that's something that we all face on a regular basis. Oh, yes. I face that every day, especially recently. I moved to Miami about two years ago. And even in New York, there's a lot of spending going on, but it's very... I would say it's New York is highly segregated. Miami is so is also segregated in certain ways, but you see everything so much more. There's more sunlight, everything's more visible. There are boats on the water. You can't, you know, you see the wealth, right? And it's also just much flashier. I feel like New York wealth is very understated. You never really know if someone's rich or not. But in, in Miami, if you have wealth, you you show it off. So living in this city has definitely become, it's been so much more visual where markers of wealth are, be, you know, or like status symbols of anything are, are propped up everywhere because people want to show how wealthy they are. And it's, I'm so glad that I moved here in my 30s and not in my 20s because I don't think I would have been prepared to, you know, swim against the current, which that's some, that's the advice that I have in the book, which is to swim against the current. It's very difficult for you 
if you are trying to swim in a certain direction and everyone is swimming against you, if you like really don't have a, the motivation and the belief that like you're going the right way. When you're doubting yourself and everyone's going that way and you're trying to go and then you're like, maybe I should, wait, should I be going that way? You know, you you don't know. And so you're much more likely to give up on your goals or to just turn around and give in. So I think for me, strengthening my mindset around money, which I did throughout my mid-20s and late-20s by reading a lot of books about money, personal finance, mindset, personal development, behavioral economics and behavioral science, I felt like I understood what was being done to my brain when I look at marketing campaigns, advertising campaigns, when I look at status symbols. And so I felt like I was now, like I was prepared to fight against it because I'm the awareness is so strong now versus in my 20s, I had no awareness of what was going on. I just, I would just go right with the current, you know, whatever everyone around me was doing, that's what I wanted to do. So I think the best way you can have some, some sort of balance if you're seeking balance is to prepare yourself mentally you know, and I talk about this in the book where I say, like, every day you get up and you go to battle. Like, you have to fight to keep your dollars in your pocket because the moment you wake up and breathe oxygen, everybody wants your money. So, you know, ads on the radio, ads on a bus, like, everywhere you go, you're going to see people trying to sell you stuff. On social media, you swipe sponsored posts. Everybody wants your money. And you should want your money more. And in order to do that, it really takes a lot of mental conditioning and understanding a lot of the psychology and for me, just recognizing that there's so many biases, my brain's going to jump to, oh, I want that purse. Oh, I want those shoes. And then I have to be able to have that check, you know, that check myself to say, oh, do I, I don't need those shoes. I, I just, this is that, this is that bias that's popping into my head FOMO. If I don't get it, everyone's going to have it. I don't need it. And just being that person who can check yourself is going to be so much more helpful for you financially down the line, but it's going to take a lot of mental work up front, which is reading, understanding, familiarizing yourself with the biases that exist, cognitive biases that get in the way, and then also learning how you personally can combat those biases in your own life. Janelle, there's a lot of great information in your book, and I'm going to highly suggest people go out and get it, especially if you are struggling with understanding things like debt and credit scores and how to save and how to invest. But I'd like to spend some of our time together talking about your push to legislatively change how high schoolers are being taught about personal finance. Let's begin at the beginning. How did you find yourself becoming a financial expert? I mean, you yeah. came out of college really being a teacher and certainly teaching about finances is a form of, of teaching. But how did you find yourself in this lane about teaching about finances? Yeah, I think it was really that pivot. I mean, you named it. It's the pivot from just being a general teacher to being a financial educator. And so for me, it came from just me implementing a lot of the changes in my own life that I saw immediate results. I saw immediately I was saving more. Immediately my investments, you know, I could see the result of them. I could project out like in 20, 30 years, what's my retirement going to have? If I, you know, put up this budget in place and then adjust it and then stick to it, like I see the results of that. So the immediate results is something that within the world of teaching is like critical because you're constantly changing course and trying to get immediate feedback. So if I'm working with a student and I'm trying to get them to understand the meaning of this vocabulary word, there's a couple ways we could do it, right? And some of it is just rote memorization. So we might play a certain game 
if they don't memorize that word, if they don't remember it tomorrow, I'm going to try that game again. If that doesn't work, that's it. It do, This is not the way they're going to learn. So I'm going to try a different learning vehicle, a different activity, a different game, a different exercise, flashcards, something else that may work for them. And that's what teachers are doing every day, trial and error with 30 kids all day trying to see what is going to be the best way for each of you to learn the same content because we all learn differently. So for me, that that's really what it was. It was recognizing that even though I have this passion for teaching, I, I want to be able to teach the things that have this immediate result and in, in impact in my life. And so I looked around the school system. I'm like, when I was a student, I never learned this. As a teacher, I'm not teaching it. It's still not in any of the curriculum being used in schools. When is this going to change? So I just started making videos myself, like little educational tutorials, posting them on YouTube. And that was back in 2015. And they just started getting a lot of views, a lot of comments, a lot of attention. And I'm like, wow, this is clearly something that people are gravitating to because they want to learn this stuff. They don't know where to go. So they're searching it on Google. YouTube results are popping up and they're watching you know, my videos. So I, I thought that this informal kind of education online, how do I formalize it? So I got involved with NextGen Personal Finance in 2018 which is um, a nonprofit that works to create curriculum to help teachers teach financial literacy and personal finance in schools. At the time when I joined, it was just high school, but we even now have middle school curriculum. And so it was for me the perfect way to combine like my passion for talking about money and teaching personal finance and my master's in education. Like, can I put those two things together in a way that brings me more joy and more passion than just, you know, teaching one classroom of kids all day, every day for the school year? And it really did. I loved it. I love teaching teachers because they change their own financial habits and then they bring it to their students and then the students bring it home to their parents and their families. And there's this amazing ripple effect when you teach in a school and when you teach teachers. So I absolutely loved it. But the obstacle really was, how do we get the states to require it? Because education is not a federal issue in our country. It's very highly localized. So one state could have a completely different high school curriculum than another state because it's decided at the state level what's being taught, which standards are being addressed, what kind of lessons are students learning in schools. So many states are similar, but, you know, individualized for their state. And and honestly, it, I'm not saying that's not how it should be. I actually support a highly localized education system. And I think that's the right way to approach it because I grew up in New York City where I didn't need to learn about agriculture. However, if I'm in a completely different state, agriculture could be a huge component of my daily life. So it should be catered to your environment so that it's relevant to your life. However, there are certain things that should be a core part of what we all learn. And the reality is no matter whether you go into agricultural work or you go work on Wall Street, you're getting a paycheck and you need to know what the basic money management uh, strategies are going to be for that paycheck so it doesn't you know, disappear into thin air the moment it hits your, your direct deposit. And so for me, that was what I realized like I just was gravitating more to. And luckily for me, the leadership team at NGPF, co-founder Tim Ranzetta, was very passionate about getting to that. He calls it Mission 2030, right, which is the, the mission for the organization that by the year 2030, all 50 states in America will have a guaranteed access for every high school student through a required personal finance class, which is a semester long class. So it can't just be, you know, nine weeks or four, or four weeks of budgeting in a business or economics class. It's got to be 18 weeks minimum, so a full semester of nothing but personal finance being taught. What's standing in the way of this? Like, why aren't state legislatures jumping at this opportunity to improve people's financial education? 
Well, they have a lot of stakeholders, a lot of constituents who care about a lot of things. Financial literacy is just one of them. The same way that I come to them with a passionate argument and data-backed research showing, you know, why this is necessary and that we have the tools to do it, there's someone else behind me waiting outside the door waiting to tell them that ethnic studies has just as much data-backed research and that that's just as important to teach. And that there's someone else behind them saying, you know, nutrition and health is just as important and sex education needs to be a full semester, not just a couple weeks. So every like sort of issue has this passionate constituency and lawmakers have a really hard job. Like we got to give them some credit because they are the ones that have to sit down and go, how are we going to prioritize all of these issues, which are so important to our constituents, but we don't have the ability to add all of them to the curriculum because we are dealing with a limited school day, you know, 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. on average. You don't have the ability to teach everything that you want. So certain things have to remain electives, which are opt in, and certain things have to be after school programs that are, you know, electives and certain things are going to be the core. So they have to kind of make that tough decision. And it's my job to just be the one to ultimately make the argument that this financial literacy education in this day and age needs to be part of the core. It can't, it can no longer be an elective over by the wayside that some kids choose and some kids maybe just don't like, it's got to be taught to everybody so that we all leave school with an equal chance and equal footing. You know, public school is the great equalizer. That's what, that's what the public school system was created by master's program. Remember writing, you know, at length about it, the public school system being the intention of it being the great equalizer. And so now when we think about what does that mean in the context of the 21st century, it really means that everybody has an equal opportunity to try their best to thrive financially. I remember first having this conversation, I think, on this podcast in 2018. We were called What's Up Next at the time, but I was interviewing Julian and Kirsten Saunders, and we were talking about this idea of it's really impossible to have civil rights without financial rights, and you can't have financial rights without financial education, right? Yeah, and that's right. And so it all kind of ties together. And so as I'm hearing you talk about, you know, ethnic studies, and I hear you talking about health and all those things, I think it still gets back to basic human and civil rights. And it's really hard to have that without an equal financial footing. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I love Kirsten and Julian and their book Cashing Out is amazing. And, and I think that they even have made some really strong arguments recently about the role financial education plays. Let's not get it twisted. Let's not get confused and, and think that by by creating financial literacy mandates across the country, that all of a sudden that is going to cure a lot of the problems that our country has been dealing with economically, socioeconomically, racially. That's not what we're saying is going to happen. But at the very least, it is going to be one moving part of the solution because the solution is going to be multifaceted and it can't exist without financial education. So even though financial education isn't the panacea, it's definitely going to be a core part of this multifaceted solution that I think we've all desperately been looking for for decades. So do you consider yourself an activist? And if you do, was that ever something you thought you would be when you kind of started in your career? You know, I do. I do think that I am a financial education activist. And in my role, actually, there's an affiliated organization that I actually work with as an advocate. So that's my title there, which is Mission 2030 Fund. And that was is a 501c4 organization. So it's not for profit. All the work that we do is not for profit on the financial education side. But the key there is that we do work with lawmakers. We do work with lobbyists. We do work with key stakeholders to create an, an a crew of folks who are championing a 
a bill because the reality is most average everyday people have no idea how a bill moves from a proposed bill to actually becoming signed law. I never knew until I got involved in this work. You know, I had seen episodes of Schoolhouse Rock, but like, okay, I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill, right? Like I, <laughs> I, I remember those songs and stuff from TV, but I didn't really internalize that real intricate process. And in every state, it's even a little bit different. So I think that the real challenge has been having to navigate, like if I have success in one state, like we had success in March of 2022 with the Florida bill. And that's great. Made headlines a big deal. That was a lot of work. But then now we're going to a different state. We go to Michigan. Michigan is very different from Florida. So now it's almost like you have to hit the restart button and you're resetting completely a new state, a new demographic, new lawmakers, new stakeholders. new And, and you're starting to create this argument based on new information, new constituents. And so for me, it's really exciting work. But I definitely see how a lot of people kind of maybe misunderstand why it isn't happening and why it's missing. It's because if it were simple, it would have been gotten done. But it's not simple. It requires money. It requires champions. It requires key stakeholders having experts like myself coming in and saying, this is what the research shows. This is the free curriculum available. This is why schools are not going to break the bank or the budget trying to teach this. This is why a lot of the things that we assume are actually not correct. And the data shows it not to be true. And then there's a few little other things that I would mention that have made it tricky, which is, you know, one is when to teach it. A lot of schools want to make things easy for teachers and for the adults in the school building. So they want to put it in where the scheduling makes it easy for the adults in the building to make it work. You know, all of the folks that work in the scheduling office, they would prefer to get it done freshman year. So it's like right away, super easy to fill freshman schedules. But the data shows it's not effective when you're 14 years old. It's effective when it's at a just-in-time phase of your life, which means it's just in time for you to utilize it and apply it, which means if you're learning about car insurance, you're actually buying car insurance. You can't even drive a car till you're 16. So why are we teaching you about car insurance at 14? Doesn't make sense. If you're filing a FAFSA to try to get financial aid for college, you're doing that junior and senior year. You're not doing that freshman year. So trying to teach it, too soon has its detrimental effects because it doesn't stick and it doesn't get applied. And so they lose it. By the time they're 16, 17, they're like, oh, I, I kind of remember learning something about premiums. I don't remember because by then they've taken so many other classes. So it has to be in junior or senior year. And that's one of the things in my role as an advocate and activist is actually showing that data to a lot of lawmakers who just maybe, I mean, they're busy. They have so many bills in front of them. They have a lot of work to do. It's not their fault that they're unaware of the cutting edge research around effective financial education. That's my niche, not theirs. Well, John Ellie, I wanted to really thank you for coming on today. When I think about our conversation, I really contemplate this idea that there are three main ways to teach people about money, especially kids. You can model good behavior, you can didactically teach them, or you can allow them to learn through experience you know, if you're like me and you grew up in a family that had some privilege, you'll probably get that modeling. Unfortunately, at this point, most states don't provide the didactic education, which leaves us with experience. And the problem with experiential learning, especially as you get older and the numbers get bigger, is it can be dangerous. And that's where we see people with things like credit card debt, etc., the only way to make this better in the United States today is to improve the didactic learning. It's the one thing that isn't dangerous like the experience and isn't the modeling which everyone is not lucky to have. But to do that, we need people like you, activists, who are willing to push it 
in our state legislators to make it happen in our state legislation. So thank you so much for doing that. The name of the book is Mind Your Money, Insightful Stories and Strategies to Help You Reach Your Money Goals. Janelle, if people want to read this book, what's the best way for them to get it? Yes. Thank you so much. First of all, Doc, this was such a great conversation. Your questions were amazing. And I think that the best way to do it is to just search for it on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, Mind Your Money. And when you type that out, it should pop up. It starts sale officially May 30th, 2023. So if you're listening to this after that, then awesome. You can just search it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It'll pop up and you can make the purchase. And you can also just go to my website, missbehelpful.com and purchase it there. M-I-S-S-B-E helpful. Janelle, thank you so much for coming on today. And thank you for your work on behalf of people everywhere just trying to learn their money. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. I've always believed that there are three main ways in which we teach our children about money. There is modeling, what kids see their parents do. There is didactic teaching, when someone sits kids down and teaches them about compounding interests and savings accounts and checking accounts, etc. And then there is experiential learning. This is where we give kids a chance to have some money in their pockets, to use it, maybe wisely, maybe unwisely, and then learn from their mistakes. Three basic mechanisms to teach kids about money, modeling, didactic teaching, and experiential learning. Well, let's look at this in real time. If you look at someone like me, I grew up in a family that had a reasonable amount of money. So the first thing I got were parents who were business owners, parents who saved and invested and bought rental properties, etc. So I had wonderful financial modeling. Let's move to didactic teaching. My parents never really sat me down and talked about money. In fact, in a lot of ways, they did things for me. So I didn't have to always make my own decisions. And I didn't have anyone teach me what compounding interest was or how exactly to invest in the stock market. I just knew from what my parents were doing that that was something they did. And last but not least, experiential learning. My parents had enough money that they gave me an allowance, but it was a set allowance. It was a certain amount of money every week. So I knew how much I had. I knew how much I could spend. I had the ability to make some mistakes. When I turned 15, I got a job and eventually I got a checking account and some credit cards. But all of those things had limits. I only had so much money in my bank account. My credit card only had so much limit. So I had a chance to learn through experience, but to do so safely, to see what happens if I was late paying my credit card, etc. All things that as an adult, we do not want to do regularly. So that was me. But what if I'd grown up somewhere else where maybe my parents didn't have a lot of money? Maybe they were immigrants and were new to the way things work in the U.S. If that were the case, I probably wouldn't have had a huge amount of modeling. I probably would have had savings behavior modeling, but maybe not owning a business or investing in the stock market. Maybe not owning real estate. You know, it's possible, but, you know, it's quite possible that I wouldn't have had any of those experiences 
So then let's go to didactic teaching. Well, again, maybe my parents are stressed out. They're working as hard as they can just to make enough money to survive. Maybe they don't actually know how our financial system works. And so they're not going to didactically teach me. And last but not least, experiential. Well, the only experiential learning I'm really going to get if I was born into that kind of circumstances is the experience of not having money. So yeah, I probably could learn frugality and how to make a go of things without a lot of money. Uh, But I wouldn't have a lot of experience with things like credit cards and checking accounts and understanding how to balance my money and to use it properly. So if that's the case, what happens to me as I grow older? Well, without modeling and without didactic teaching, at some point, if I'm lucky enough, I get to the point where I'm making money and I'm adult. And that's where the experiential learning kicks in because I didn't really have it as a kid. But the problem is, as an adult, there are a lot more risks. You can get yourself into a lot more trouble. By then, you might have credit cards. So I have to learn through experience when I'm maybe in my 20s, and that's a great time to make mistakes. I shouldn't say that's a great time. That's a time when people make mistakes, but the mistakes are much bigger and much costlier Our episode today with Janelli Espinal is a complete example. You know, she didn't have that experience using credit cards and having money. So when she finally was old enough in college and got her first credit card, her experiential learning was to run up $20,000 of debt. And that, of course, is not the way we want to experience these things. We want to experience them when we're much younger, when the risks are that we run out of our allowance, not that we get a bad credit card score or have a huge amount of debt. So what do we do about this? Well, it's clear to me that we're probably not going to fix the modeling of the world. People are either going to get good financial modeling or not. It also occurs to me that we probably won't fix the problem of experiential learning because a lot of young people who grew up in families that don't have money aren't going to have a lot of money to experience how to invest and how to use credit cards, etc. So that leaves us with didactic teaching. Now, We can do what we've been doing, which is expect people to teach their children about money. But again, for a huge percent of the population, they don't understand money themselves, so they're going to have trouble teaching it to their children. And I think here is where the message of Janelle Espinal really comes forth, this idea of legislating financial teaching in high schools. If we can start teaching kids in school didactically, We can make up for the absence of great modeling. We can make up for the absence of experiential learning. And we can at least give them some tools, some tools today so that when they become adults, when they start making a living, when they have enough money, they don't have to go through the painful mistakes that so many people do, buying too big of a house, using their credit cards too much, investing in scams or in stocks that won't serve them over the long term. These are all things that hopefully we can teach people to avoid, but we have to do it. And maybe one of the ways we need to really consider is that we have to do it through our school system. When kids are 16, 17, 18, junior and senior year of school, it's the perfect time to teach these lessons to them. It's the perfect time because they're learning in real time, just as they're thinking about driving and insurance and having their first jobs and payroll, and yes, maybe even getting their first credit card. This is the time to do it. I tip my hat to Janelle Espinal. I think she knows what our country needs, and that is... Better 
long-term legislation to teach personal finance in high school. All right, I keep things running just for a second to catch our after show, what we talk about. Was there anything about the book or you that you feel like we didn't touch on or that was really important? One thing I will say, just because like your end note and your personal experience definitely does reflect like, you know, modeling helps you learn and things. I will tell you, though, a lot of the research shows that even when you grow up in a wealthy family or in a family that kind of knows what to do with their money, they oftentimes just do it for you. So they will create your Roth IRA for you. They will open your savings account for you. They will help you by adding you as an authorized user for your credit card. And nowhere along that way, around that route of doing it for you, are they pulling you in and teaching you actively what they're doing, why they're the why they're doing it is so critical. And so you end up with somebody who's set up financially at 30 because their family knew what to do, but they are still clueless as to why and what's going on. So I, I do think that the the reason why my passion is just like everybody needs it, even if you're, you know, because it's true. The chances that you're actually getting the what and the why coupled together as well as the how, the what you need to do why you need to do it and how to do it that combination of three questions around any financial topic it really only happens in a formal financial education instructional setting which for the most part isn't really the home it could be and it should be but it's not you know that's an ideal world that we're living in where every family is creating you know an experience at the dinner table where we're really having a learning activity while we eat i mean it just is not so common so i do think that that for me is where the fire comes from to really push for this for every single kid especially at the high school level because once you're 18 you can start signing on the dotted line for all types of financial contracts and and legally you're fine to do that so we got to get a a catch-all before the 18th birthday and i definitely relate exactly to what you're saying because my parents did model great behavior but they didn't specifically teach me so i ended up being exactly that a doctor who's making a good salary who saved lots of money even had some real estate did some other things but i didn't i had trouble putting it all together Until I had to self-teach, right? Which is what a lot of us do is we go to the internet and find videos like yours and you go and you self-teach yourself. I got kind of connected to the financial independence retire early movement because it spoke to where I was in my career at that stage. Um, But yes, I had to, I had to find a way to put it together. Put it all together. Even though I kind of knew a lot of the steps. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me what it is, is like holes that you have to kind of fill, like fill, there's these foundational gaps that are missing. Even though you have some stuff, you kind of got to put it together, fill the gaps, and then it all makes sense for you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. I, I, I mean, my son, so my kids do have to do some financial education, but it's not its own class. It's, I think a month or two of a kind of broader self-care class. Um, but it's not yet its own thing. I think it's better than some places. Yeah. Um, what state are you all in? Uh, what state are you residing? So I'm outside of Chicago and Illinois. So I'm in Evanston, oh, yeah. Illinois. So We're working on our bill right now in Illinois. We're so yeah. close. I don't think it's going to happen in 2023. But there is, I'm, I'm so confident because there is a huge group that is championing this and the governor is already super interested in getting this yeah. done. So Illinois is coming in, in the next, within the next two to three years, it's definitely going to happen. Um, it's just not going to be an immediate one like you know, Indiana, West Virginia, these states just, just, just did it. Florida did it. Michigan did it. And I think Illinois is starting to feel the pressure because Michigan got it done. So yeah. I, that it's coming. It's just it's not going to be, you know, um, this fall coming up or next, but it's definitely in the pipeline. Yeah. Well, again, hats off 
to you for doing that work um, because it can affect literally, right? Millions of people. Oh, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then they're, the, the, the thing about this work And then they teach me, their parents. <laughs> yes, they teach their parents. It's right? like so seatbelts and smoking. Yeah. Yes, and that the fact that it's a two-way, sh- it goes in both directions. So like you go back home, you help your, far- your family and your parents, but now you know it. So now the next generation of students that goes to high school, every year there's a new graduating class of students. So once you pass a law one time, it's going to guarantee every future generation, every graduating class after that bill, after that law goes into effect, is now guaranteed to get this class. So even long before I I'm gone and all my money's gone. There's still this legacy. And for me, that is like, it puts all my little hairs stand on end because mm-hmm. as a teacher, as an educator, you want, and, and as a doctor, I mean, we want impact. We want to help people get results. And I mean, what kind of impact could be bigger than this lasting legacy that changes the trajectory for everybody who goes to school in our country? Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.